0: So in this uh, text in the scripture, clearly something that is happening that uh, can't be understated is Jesus is walking on water, and I know that's like that's that's like a Hollywood like type of story. That's like a Hollywood Jesus walks on water. Like we, I, I feel like I've heard that in so many different contexts outside of scripture. Like man, this this person can really walk on water, man. They can really get you what they need. Or I need to really make this thing walk on water so I can get my point across. Like it's this miraculous like term that's used in every sort of context. So I don't think this is something that's unknown outside of a biblical context, but I think it's interesting how the, the, the depth and the miraculousness of it is taken outside the Bible and it actually can be used in many contexts, so to speak. Walking on water back then, was equally impressive, impressive as it would have been now, right? It's something that I think I read past sometimes thinking this is one of those stories in the Bible. Of course, Jesus walks on water. He's divine. But I think if there was technology back then, and you understand where I'm going with this, this would have been something that would have crossed your IG feed, your TikTok feed. Like this would have been a viral moment. And, and let's just be honest, we would have all claimed that it was like CGI. There was Photoshop involved. Someone edited the video we ought to have been critics. Some of us can be critics online, and don't look at me like you're not. Some of us, I'm just kidding. None of you are critics online, I'm sure. And by the faces, I've offended some of you, so I apologize now off the bat before I get started. Kidding. But in some ways, I think if we would have seen that, if the entire world would have seen Jesus walk on water, I think there would have been something attached to that that felt a little bit like, is that real? He walks on water, what else can he do? I think the moment would have been a little bit lost. And I'm just taking that in considering what we have available to us today. We can be skeptical. This, by the way, if you're looking at the timeline of Mark, this is fresh off the moment where Jesus and the disciples just fed 5,000 plus people. Before that, the Bible mentions that Jesus, actually he's not even welcomed in his own hometown, so he gets kicked out of his hometown. So, He's he's an interesting, and I'm going to take this off. Is that okay? And All right. Is that better? Fantastic. So, if we're looking at the timeline, he's not only feeding five thousand plus people. This is just what Jesus does. He's walking and living life in a way that is incredible. In today's terms, I would say Jesus has no chill like just a young kid way of saying things, because I'm 31, I'm going to use it, and I'm going to look old doing it, because that's what I'm going to do. But in this timing, in this way, I think it's interesting, because if the disciples are just leaving a moment where they were feeding 5,000 plus people, and by the way, he was also, Jesus was teaching 5,000 plus people, you would imagine there'd be some exhaustion that comes with that. It, the story, like, is, is amazing. But I, can you imagine being in a crowd? I mean, how many of you guys have ever been to a concert? It's been a few years, bad question. <laughs> or, or a large event, and your things are getting passed out. You've been to a big, big like Christmas or Easter service or some kind of where things are being passed out. One of the things I, we love about the end of the year is the candlelight service. Think of how much time that takes. You're coordinating. I remember I was helping with that service and I was like, oops, got to light the fire. Whoops, missed it. Oops, not lighting. You're just waiting, you're being patient. That is the context they just left. I know the miracle of 5,000, it sounds amazing and it is, but that was a lot of work for the disciples, I'm thinking. That was a lot of energy we got to find, okay, now we're getting five loaves, two fishes. Jesus, how are we going to do this? What are we going to do? Where are we going to find it? How are we going to, you're going to do what? You're going to sit them in groups and small groups and have them do what? They They didn't expect that. Jesus isn't prepping them for that. This is what they carry in to this moment when they're on the boat and a storm comes. Do we all understand that? Jesus walking on water was more than him just doing something that was miraculous. Jesus was showing something to us and the disciples, one is showing us his divinity. We understand that Jesus came in flesh. He bled like man. He hurt like man and, and mankind, women, right? He felt everything a human would feel. But he was also divine. which means he can walk on water. He was modeling, in a sense, what it looks like to be a whole human being and son and daughter of God. I am flesh, I'm also divine. He tapped into something that he was trying to have us model. He shows up by walking in the midst of a time where the disciples may have been drained, exhausted, tapped out, and struggling. Something else I love to keep in mind as we're reading this text is this. You might already know this, um, but, but this is Mark's account of what happened. Right? Like, first-hand account. That means that, in a biblical sense, we can trust it. This isn't like a, a 12th-person account. This is, here is what I'm seeing. So I want to read something to you really quick here. It says this, and I'm going to read it in a different tone. Immediately after this, Jesus insisted that, instead of his disciples, replace that with, we get back into the boat. and head across the lake. While well, he sent the people home, after telling them goodbye... He went up into the hills by himself to pray. Late that night, instead of the disciples, we were in the boat in the middle of the lake. He is telling the story from his perspective, but he's also giving you this, like, I was there. He was there. And he's telling it in that kind of way. And that helps us read it in a whole different light. Have you ever kind of thought or scratched your head at this, that whenever you see in Scripture Jesus do something miraculous, you see that word miraculous, is that... By the way, I'm just curious. The word miraculous, is that, is that a term that kind of makes you scratch your head? Or are you kind of, if that makes you scratch your head, can you just raise your hand? Who's willing? Okay, yeah, a few of us. My hand is raised because it makes me scratch my head too. <laughs> it's a kind of a, a word that it, it makes me go to a certain place. I didn't mean to put it on the spot. Thanks for raising your hands. But it makes me scratch my head a little bit. And that is because every time I see it in Scripture, the words that usually follow miraculous or Jesus did a miracle or Jesus did this. Words that usually follow are are this, and the people were amazed. They were awestruck. They were surprised. And then, however, in this setting, you read in Mark, Mark writes that they cried out in terror. This is so interesting. As Jesus is fixated on helping his disciples navigate through their trouble on water, they actually cry out in terror. Why? Because... They were in a storm, and the storm distorted their vision. They thought they saw a ghost. The storm that they're in actually creates the stage for the impossible to happen in the lives of the disciples. The storm that they're in actually creates the stage for the impossible. Without that storm, there would be in that moment no need for them to cry out. It wouldn't exist in Scripture. Hmm. We see this happen often in Scripture. There's the impossible that needs to happen, i.e., feeding the 5,000 food, i.e., wedding cana. We need wine. Jesus is like, ah, not my time. Please, Jesus. Okay, I'll do it. Um, Paraphrasing irreverently, so Jesus is, (laughs) forgive me for that. But there is this stage that gets presented that gets at the feet of Jesus where he's listening and he's hearing the cries and he's hearing the stress, and then that gives space for the impossible to happen. Jesus is modeling the impossible. And as we look at how he models the impossible, it teaches us how to walk in the impossible. Before we can actually walk in the impossible and feel confident to do that, we have to understand a few things. And that's, first one is this, and it's going to sound obvious, but we will encounter storms, period. I'm going to show you a picture of the Sea of Galilee um, because it's just interesting. This is the Sea of Galilee. It's freshwater. It's actually pretty—you'll um, see this talked about a ton in Scripture. And one of the things that I love about looking at this image, and this is no, like, biblical theologian, like, scholarly phrase I'm going to—or explanation I'm going to give you. But it's, it's just—it's interesting if you just turn it just a slight bit, not back there, don't turn it. <laughs> but if you turn it, it actually looks like a picture of a harp, and it's actually been known as a sea that looks like a harp. And what was interesting to me as I was reading this is I immediately connected it to back in the Old Testament when David was just a boy, and he played his harp for Saul, who was struggling, having a terrible time, and this would calm the demons that Saul was dealing with. And as we look at the Sea of Galilee. Shaped like a heart, I can't help but think Jesus is actually not playing the harp to calm, but he's walking in the midst of something that's difficult, shaped on the same instrument that was used to calm someone else in Scripture in the Old Testament. It's just very interesting, the shape of it and the geology. And this is a sea that God made. Interesting to me. Not super important, but very interesting. We will encounter storms. We just walked through the entire book of Job the last few weeks, so I don't need to explain what a storm is or what that feels like or what misery looks like here on earth. But if I could explain a storm and I can talk, if I could talk uh, towards one, I would say this, that it's a situation that throws us, that also disrupts us, and that challenges our faith. It's a situation that throws us, that disrupts our rhythms, and that challenges our faith. I also have to say this, though. There's somewhat of a misconception in the Christian faith. Are we ready for this? I'm about to get controversial. Here we go. Maybe I'll go viral here. Kidding. And that's this. There's this thought that if I do, then I get. It bothers me. If I do this, then I'll get that. In fact, we've kind of worked it, and another word for it is kind of karma. We've worked it into our everyday lives. And it works in some contexts, right? If I do a really good job, if I work really, really hard at my job, maybe I'll get a raise at the end of the year, right? I use it with my kids sometimes. Hey, if you have a great day, maybe we'll get that really fun toy that we love. If you take your nap when you wake up, maybe we can bake some. Well, I don't bake. Maybe mommy can bake some cookies with you. Hey, 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 I can bake. I said I don't, okay? I can bake. I just, I mess up the kitchen. It's frustrating for everyone except for me. Right? So we kind of work it into our everyday lives. If I do, then I get. In the kingdom of God, we understand this, that it works so different. Doing good doesn't always equate to receiving all good earthly things. In fact, if you do good and you're doing it in line with the heart of God, with pure intentions, then your heart truly, like, shouldn't be positioned for compensation. It might happen that way. Matthew seven eleven tells us that it's, it's okay. God gives a good father, gives good gifts. If an earthly father can give good, good, good gifts, surely your father in heaven knows how to give good gifts. He wants to, but I, I think he wants to do away with this transactional frame of mind. In the kingdom of God, we enter or we center ourselves not around doing and getting, but we center around our identity, who God says we are. Who God says we are, not who mom or dad, not who our friend, not who our mentor, not who we think. It's who God says we are. Who God has made us to be. What gifts has God given me? How would He like to partner with each and every one of you, with each one of us here on earth? This entire Bible, this entire book is centered around that. Not just the works of Christ, the miraculous is awesome, but the character of God. As described and manifested in the life of Jesus Christ, Allah walking on water. If we miss this, it's dangerous. We can spend our life serving a God that we one day will not even recognize. We've created this entire storm. A God that you call out to in the middle of the night and you go, Where are you? It's quiet. You can't hear because it's not who God says he is. We've created this false, this false model of karma with God. And I say all this to say this. It's impossible to dictate the storms that life presents. It's literally impossible. We cannot select the terms. We can't say, well, I want just a little bit of rain, maybe some thunder, no lightning, right? I want just a little bit of this, but not All of that. You can't dictate how the storms affect you and how they'll come. We know that we will encounter them, though. (laughs) And because God is good, he is so, so interested in centering our experience, our troubles, our misery, our things around Not just the situation, but around who God says that he is. We have to draw it back to the character of God. So before we can walk in the impossible, we have to know we will encounter storms. And the second one is this. Before we can walk in the impossible, we have to understand that Jesus doesn't cause the storms, but he calms the storms. He doesn't cause the storm, but he calms the storms. The Bible is the ultimate book of authority. We agree with that. It's true. It's unique. Jesus walked a life on earth that did not contradict himself or the Father. And so I have to ask myself this. If I know that Jesus didn't cause the storm, and he, but he calms the storm, why would Jesus create a storm that he later then has to go and calm? Why would he create a situation in life that's miserable, that hurts, that stinks that he then has to go back and fix. And I tell myself this, and I'll say, and I say this all the time, he's not an egomaniac. He doesn't need to do that. Is God powerful? Absolutely. But the way in which his power is displayed is done in so many different ways. It's not always us feeling like, man, this storm is terrible, and it's God's fault. God, why are you doing this? God, I, I, was, I was doing fine, and I broke my leg, and why did you do that to me? What are you teaching me? That's one way to look at how this works. But I feel like God is so good. He doesn't need to cause pain. He can teach us through many different ways that do not include him being an egomaniac that causes large storms. I think large storms happen, and in those storms, in those m- moments where it looks like there's calamity, he, his power is displayed in his subtle grace and how he appears and how he shows up in our lives in those storms. What's happening right now, we, Silas prayed, and what's happening right now in Ukraine and Europe is, is terrible, it's miserable. What's happening right now in the world with race and justice and that conversation, it's exhausting. It's miserable. It's terrible. What's happening right now in, in Seattle and even the city that I live in, and I love Everett with unhoused and homelessness and that, that sort of, thing, like, that's hard to see. I want solutions. I want answers. But I'm not going to blame God for it. I can't. At some point, we as humankind, I think, have to step up to the plate and go, where do I weigh in here? Where can I take responsibility and not pin everything on God? You look at me, and you're like, John, well, like, there's some things that happen. There's some storms that I face. Like, are you saying that it's my fault for my storm? And that's not what I'm saying. And I can give you a, a, a clear example and put myself as an example, and that's that in 2017, 2017, uh, Sigurd and I, we were expecting our very first baby, and we didn't know the gender. We didn't know what it was going to be. We didn't know what we were having. We were just like, fine. We're excited. We tried hard. We're good. And we went to every doctor's appointment together. We had a new doctor. name was Dr. Jessica. I remember exactly who our doctor was. We asked a ton of questions. We didn't know what we were doing. And we check. Can we see the baby now? Can we go in? Can we see? And we do that whole thing. And I remember uh, maybe the fourth appointment had to be maybe week eleven. And we went in, and I knew we knew our doctor was new and fresh, and she was very kind. And we're sitting there, and like she's using the jelly, weird stuff on the belly, and looking, and she's going, "Okay, that's weird." And we go, what's wrong? Like, thinks she's joking, right? Because she's a new doctor. And she goes, well, we don't, we don't, like, I don't hear anything. Let me get a second opinion. Uh, Hearts drop. Faces are cold. Sweating. What's happening? Second opinion comes. Gives a nod. And then she delivers the news. And then we go, what? What did we do wrong? Why did that happen to us? I mean, months and weeks of just like, did I run too much? Did I sit too much? Did I eat the wrong thing? Did I not take the right vitamin? It sucked. Was that storm brought on by us? No. Did we blame ourselves for that? We did. Did we blame God for that? We did. For a long, long time because storms are confusing. They distort vision. It's hard to see. It's hard to actually find a true north when it's rocky and when it's confusing, when you're tired. It takes a long time to come out of that season. Obviously, the good part of that story, I guess the—if the, if there is a good part, on the other side of things, we have two boys now, and so that story is still writing itself. But there was a long chunk of time where I went, God, why are you doing this? And I had to change my thinking. I had to go, God's not, he's not taking life. God's not causing storms. He's not trying to hurt. He's not trying to inflict pain. But what he does do is he walks beside us in the middle of the storm, in the calamity, through it all and then says, can I come onto this boat? Can I help you navigate this? It's true that before we walk in the impossible, we really have to understand that our vision is distorted, it can be distorted, and it will alter reality. When the disciples saw Jesus as a ghost, the first thought that came to mind as I read text, and I know how you read text, the first thought that came to mind was, are you kidding me? Like, this is your rabbi. Like, this is your teacher. This is someone that's, like, walked with you. Keep in mind, before this text, they were actually sent out and then came back. And Jesus is like, well, how's the ministry? How's it going out there? They're like, it's going great. Let's feed 5,000 people. Like, they've done time together. And now they're in a space where Jesus is walking towards them in their storm. They know who Jesus is. They've experienced who Jesus is. They've learned from Jesus. They've experienced his divinity firsthand, and they have no clue who's coming. They think it's a ghost, rather than, that's got to be our Savior. That's no shame on them, but their vision was distorted, and so was the reality. I think it's interesting, too, in this story, if you notice, Jesus sends them away, and says, I want you guys just to kind of go upstream for a second. I'm going to go and be with Father. I need to reset. And as Jesus sends them away and he does that, what's so interesting to me is he sees them. And he doesn't do what I think he would do. And I think if, if, I, if, like, if I'm in the middle of a storm and I'm about to drown, my boat's about to capsize. If you know anything about me, you know I hate water. I can hardly swim. I'm thinking, Jesus, can you calm the storm first? Like, (laughs) thank you for coming on board, but you saw us. Can you at least, like, say, relax, storm? Now I can walk. He doesn't do that. He walks through on top of the water in the midst of the storm, which tells us this. We might be fixated on our situation, which might look like a storm, and that happens in different ways. But God was looking at the person He was like, who is my child? Like, who needs my help? Who am I going to go to? Am I going to address the situation, or am I going to address the person that's in the situation? This is what it teaches me about God. Does he care that we struggle, that sometimes we can face things that are hard that we carry? Yes. And sometimes do we want him just to give us prescription for the situation? Yes. Yes. But does he care more about who we are as people, as his children, as his creation, more than the situation? I think so. I think there's a level of trust that comes with that. I think if, if we understand as children of God that God cares and loves us, that when he comes in our boat, he's looking at the rest. Of, he understands everything else going on. He understands what the situation is. He knows what's happening but it strikes me so interesting that he's going and he's walking through it. He's making eye contact with them. Do you see who I am? Do you see who I am? Do you see that I'm coming towards you? Now that you see who I am, now that you can receive me for who I am, we're here. Now you know that I'm not just solving your problem, but I care about you. I care about your soul. I care about you, who you are. Now I can come into the boat of your life, and now... Through that experience, now we can look and go, okay, how do we put some fires out? How can I help you to see me more clearly? This is such an interesting thing. I, for one, wanted stop the storm first and then invite yourself on my boat. Thank you. Not the way it works. Wherever you find that you might be in your storm, I, I, I love that Mark chapter 6, verse 48 tells us this. And actually, Mark chapter 48, verses through 51. I'm going to read those really quick here. Late that night, the disciples were in their boat in the middle of the lake, and Jesus was alone on land. He saw they were in serious trouble, rowing hard and struggling against the wind and the waves. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them, walking on water. He intended to go past them, but then saw him. Uh, but they saw him walking on water. They cried out in terror, thinking he was a ghost. They were all terrified. When they saw him. But Jesus spoke to them at once, do not be afraid, take courage. I am here. Wherever you are in your storm, verse 48 tells us this that you're seen by God. Jesus went away, had his time, and had quiet time with the Father. And I just imagine him just going, Ah man, that was a nice, relaxed, quiet time I just had. Has anyone ever had a good devotion where you just feel like, Man, I don't care reckless drivers, people being rude in the supermarket, supermarket in the store. I don't care what's happening. Nothing can disturb my day. You just feel great. Like you just had this great time. I imagine Jesus just having this great time and all of a sudden here we go. We're back on. Didn't I just feed the 5,000 with y'all? But you're seen by God. He's not too busy to make, to take notice and look at you. He sees you. Jesus saw them. Wherever you are in your storm, you're heard by God. He heard them. Although they didn't say, Jesus, where are you? Which could be a whole other message. They cried out in terror. They cried out in fear before he got there. They were just struggling, trying to make it work. It wasn't until they saw him that they went, oh, there you are. You would have been helpful. Maybe I should have cried out to you. It doesn't matter. Wherever you are in your storm, God hears you even if you can't formulate the perfect prayer that was key for myself for me and my wife sigrid we couldn't even formulate like how do we cry out about this in a way that feels like we're not blaming in a way that feels like god we're still believers like we still get it but this hurts he still hears us i think that helps our hearts will communicate things to God that our mouths will never speak out loud. He's that good. And wherever you are in your storm, you're protected and loved deeply and dearly by God. That feeling of being protected and loved, we, I see it all the time. We see it in movies a ton. There's a, whole, there's a whole section of movies, love stories, rom-coms the feeling of being protected and loved isn't this Hollywood type of emotion or feeling that started on film or in theater. It started at creation when he formed us, when he said, I have purpose and plan for you. That is why there's this desire and feeling to be protected and to be loved as you're sitting next to your loved one. Whereas you cuddle up with a blanket next to a fire and it's cold, like that feeling or sense, did you know that's something that God put in each and every one of us? That's what makes us human, and it should draw us, actually point us towards God. We are protected and we are loved, even in the storm. So, storms will present themselves in different ways in your lives. You might be listening, and you're like, well, we're trying to figure out how to navigate difficult conversations with loved ones. We're trying to figure out how to navigate conversations around race, reconciliation, and justice, and just how, like, how does that relate to the Bible? Like, what does Jesus say? I don't really know about that. What does Jesus say about that? Who do I ask about that? That might feel like a storm, confusion. Maybe you're trying to parent difficult children. You have toddlers like me, or maybe you have teens. Maybe you're trying to have children. Maybe you're trying to let children go if they're going off to college. Maybe there's unforgiveness in your heart. Maybe that's your storm. Maybe you're just dealing with something that you're just like, I need to let this go. But I can't be the first one to apologize. It was their fault. I always apologize. They always do the same thing. These to me look like situations in life that throw us, that are difficult, but that give God space to move and work. Lastly here, I'm going to share, and I think the band will come up. That's the magic word. When I look at how Jesus stepped out and walked on water, when I look at how Jesus went towards the storm, didn't stop it for safety. He said, I am God. I'm going to actually walk on the storm. I'll check on my, my, my people, and then we're going to carry the storm. Then we're going to fix the storm. Then we're going to worry about that. He did it fully clothed in divinity. He knew exactly who he was, and the Spirit of God was something that he was serious about. I can't help but mention that Jesus walked with the Spirit of God. This thing about presence, it's not just something we compartmentalize and we do a special service for. It's not just this this thing that gives us goosebumps. He walked in it which helped him walk in the impossible with authority when things were going crazy, when things were swirling around, it helped him get there and stay focused. How do we do that? It's a daily commitment to following Christ. We have to have some perspective on the things that we were faced with. We have to have some perspective on these situations in life that feel like storms, And I don't want to minimize storms, because storms are different for each and every person. And even though they're not caused by you, even though you didn't do anything to deserve them, even though you didn't make them happen, there's still a moment to seek God's face and go, God, I know it wasn't you. I know it wasn't me. I know I don't have the answer, but how do I walk through this? How do I walk through this impossibility knowing that you're with me and your spirit is guiding me. We have to do this thing with the spirit of God. Otherwise we're lost. We're just doing it to fix situation. We're just doing it for a good result. That's not how he works. So I want to encourage you with that today. Let Jesus not just solve your problems. Don't just let him, don't just ask him, God, I need to get through this thing. Help me. And then then we'll fix this thing. Then I'll have my time with you. You're important, God. I love you, but this storm is really, really big. If you can just fix this issue, then we can, like, don't take that perspective. Don't take that approach. Jesus didn't take that approach. He's super in love with you. He's super interested in, in you as a whole, complete person. Notice I didn't say as a, as a, as a Christian, as a person. No matter where your walk of faith is, like, he's super interested and in love with you as a person. And I feel like we need to hear that. We need to tell ourselves that. It has nothing to do with what you've done, with where you've come from, what you bring into a space. Whatever you carry, God is like, I don't care. I'm walking through a storm. I don't care if you forgot who I was. I'm still walking through a storm to get to you. I don't care if you're in a storm and you can't see and you think I'm a ghost, I'm still getting in your boat and we're gonna figure this thing out. God is near, he's love, and he's here for us. We have to invite him in. let me pray for us this morning. God, we thank you so much for the way in which you embody power and grace. It may not always look like we need it to, God, but we know that you are good. God, we thank you for the relational approach that you take in our lives. Thank you, God, that we can't do enough (laughs) to lose you, God, or to earn you. You love us just the way we are. We're thankful for you. And God, for the storms that we face, the things that we face, God, things that we have to tackle, I pray, God, that we would never lose sight of who you are, and that's a good father. You're good. You're with us. No matter what, we thank you so much for your word and your truth in the book of Mark. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.